From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection for this hour was made on August 19, 1864, at the White House. President Abraham Lincoln had requested a meeting with Frederick Douglass, and this would mark the second time that the men would meet in this setting. It would change Douglass and how he viewed this president. History, of course, sort of broadly remembers Abraham Lincoln as the president who brought emancipation, who helped build a painful road toward equality. But Frederick Douglass was more than willing to criticize Lincoln on a number of grounds. As biographer David Blight points out in his remarkable new book, Douglas had accused President Lincoln of having an absence of all moral feeling on many issues, including slavery and equality. But that day at the White House, Lincoln stunned Douglas with a more fervent conviction for equality than ever before. And he was also quite forthright in his own re-election chances. He was worried about the war and the future of the country, and it marked a turning point in their relationship. And the detail uncovered in these moments by David Blight offers us a chance to grasp what it might have been like to be in those rooms when two titanic historical figures treated each other just as men. And that mattered to Douglas. The book is called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. It has been praised just about everywhere. The New York Times, for example, writes, quote, Blight isn't looking to overturn our understanding of Douglas, whose courage and achievements were unequivocal, but to complicate it, a measure by which this ambitious and empathetic biography resoundingly succeeds, end quote. David Blight doesn't write hagiography. He's careful, and he lets readers know that when he knows something or when he can only guess about something, and that lends even more weight to his work, which uses decades of research to give us new insight into Frederick Douglass, the man. Blight is in Rochester, and there are events to let you know about, but first let me welcome the author and congratulate him on the book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Thank you for being here, David. Thank you, Evan. It's great to be here. All right, and there are some events to tell you about. In fact, we've got a full studio here, and it's great to have Ken Morris back with us. He's the co-founder of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, and by the way, he is the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington. Ken, great to have you back in Rochester. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing well, Evan. Thank you for having me back. And there is a, there's an event tonight. There's an event tomorrow. Richard Newman's pre- professor of history at RIT. He'll tell us more about that coming up. Nice to have you, Professor. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. And Jessica Locker-Feldman is Assistant Dean and the Joseph N. Lambert and Harold B. Schleifer Director of Rare Books and Special Collections at the University of Rochester River Campus Libraries. Jessica, welcome back to you. Thank you very much. Great well, to be here. I was telling David Blight before the hour began, not many interviews I get a little nervous about here, but you know, <laughs> this, this is one of them. The book really is amazing. Um, and and that listeners of this program know that I choose my words carefully. Uh, but the book amazes me. I, I want to know first and foremost, though, when you decided the book needed to be written at all. I mean, there have mm-hmm. been a number of biographies about Douglas. Mm-hmm. He, of course, as you note, um, wrote his own autobiography. So when did you decide there's something missing that I can add to the canon here? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm honored to have you as a reader. And I, and I can tell you've really read the book, which is a thrill. Uh, to make a long story short, I had no plans to write a full life of Douglas. I had written my first book on Douglas way back in the late 1980s. It was a dissertation from graduate school. I had edited editions of his first two autobiographies. I had written essays on Douglas, etc. But I had Douglas pretty well out of my life until I went (laughs) to Savannah, Georgia once in 2006 to give a lecture to middle school and high school teachers on Douglas. And I met a collector, a man named Walter Evans, who took me to his house and showed me his private collection of Douglas manuscripts and material. And that led, it, I didn't immediately commit to a new life of Douglas, because frankly, that was daunting. This is a long, complicated life. Um, 
And I didn't know if I wanted to do it, but uh, the, the Evans collection convinced me that if I didn't, somebody else would. And that collection, without going into detail, is especially illuminating of the last third of Douglas's life, the older Douglas. And at the core of that collection are about 10 uh, huge family scrapbooks that were kept by Douglas's sons. And those scrapbooks, as well as a, a whole variety of other family papers, illuminate not only the older Douglas's life, but particularly illuminate uh, the history of his extended family, which is hugely important uh, in trying to understand this man, his three surviving sons, his one surviving daughter, 21 grandchildren, even some fictive siblings whom he adopted, and they adopted him. Um, and his life then, after 1872, after he leaves Rochester in Washington, D.C., so it was the Evans Collection in Savannah, Georgia, that convinced me to attempt a new life of Douglas. It didn't just come out of some uh, wise decision of my own. It was the confrontation with a collection, which is a rare thing for a historian. You just suddenly encounter this amazing mm -hmm. collection of documents, and you suddenly realize, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> it's and a if blessing I don't, and a curse, isn't if it? If <laughs> I don't, Rich Newman will, you know. So. <laughs> a real blessing and a curse situation. Ken, what do you— what do you think, as someone with family history here at stake, when you hear about a new biography, this really this massive and and this wide ranging coming your way, is it excitement or do you have you know some consternation when you when you hear that this is coming? <laughs> well, David and I have known each other for quite a while, and he has been working on this book for at least 10 years, so I've been hearing about the book for 10 years. So 10 years ago, I was very excited about it, and as time went on, it was like, okay, when are you going to finish the book? Yeah, you wondered if it ever would be, right? <laughs> but now, now that it's come out and I've read it, um, for me, the biography has filled in some pieces. Um, I, I know Frederick Douglass' story. I know that he was enslaved in Baltimore, but I never really understood how he developed his um, oratory, his oratorical voice, and how he could just, at the age of 22 or 23 years old, stand up in front of a white audience and just speak with such eloquence and charisma, and um, to find out that he actually was honing those skills while still enslaved as a preacher every Sunday at an AME church in Baltimore. It, that's just an example of how this, this book has filled in some of those pieces for me, those details. So, David, when when readers encounter this book, if they feel like they already know Douglas well, what are they likely, and again, this is a question that could be answered over hours, but sort of the, the short answer of, of the kinds of insights that you hope they, they come away with from this particular book, even for those really well-read well, well yeah. read, uh, consumers of Douglas already? Well, I hope they find a way into just how much Douglas was a genius with words. Words are the central thread of his life and of this book. Uh, the way in which this man came, not, not out of the womb, but by his own kind of training and learning, came to hear the music of words in his head and how he wrote millions of words in about every genre there is. Um, 1,200 pages of autobiography, uh, thousands of speeches, hundreds and hundreds of short-form political editorials. Uh, he, masked, he even wrote a fair amount of poetry. It wasn't his best mode, but he, he <laughs> certainly never quit trying to write poetry. But I want the reader to, to sit 
hopefully, uh, slowly, with the power of Douglass's language, because it's the words that have us sitting here today talking about him, the great speeches, the great autobiographies. Uh, that's his principal legacy. But I also hope they see a life with an extraordinary trajectory. He's born before steamboats, the rotary press, the telegraph, and the railroad. He lives all the way to electric light bulbs, the phonograph, and, uh, and a lot of other modern things. And he built his life by the steamship, the rotary press, the telegraph, and the railroad. Um, and in the middle of that life is the great epic, the, the terrible epic of uh, slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. And in many ways, no one, no American in the 19th century had more to say about that and more to instruct us with about that pivot of American history than did Douglas. Uh, so I hope they sit with his words as well as my attempts to narrate the nature of his life. And then lastly, they've got a model here for so many others of the radical outsider, the radical reformer, always on the outside, knocking on the door, who becomes with time the uh, political insider. Uh, he's that rarest of reformers who actually sees his triumph or his cause triumph in the middle of his life. He's in his 40s at the time of emancipation. Now, he didn't exactly predict all of this, but he's in his 40s, and yet he's going to live 30 more years to see those great triumphs and the constitutional amendments that resulted from them all but erased and betrayed. So in the trajectory of one life, we see arguably the greatest, most transforming change of American history, and we see it all but being eroded away, and we can see it through the lens of his life and his words. Um, and it's, it's a biography that helps us understand a great deal of American history if, if, if we look for it. And that's what I hope readers can find here. Well, there's a lot to work through, and we couldn't possibly do the whole book, but that's why you've got plenty of time to go get it now, especially for if you know someone in your life like my father who's just impossible around the holidays. You got stuff like this, Frederick Douglass, <laughs> prophet of freedom. So thank you, David. This will quiet him down. Yes, and, indeed. And make thank him go hide that. from you, I guess. Before we return to the book here, let's let you know what is coming up tonight, tomorrow. And um, I'm going to do my put my journalist hat on and try to pry something out of Ken Morris in a minute. But let's start with the events going on. What's going on tonight? Well, uh, a lot. So we are... Uh, really excited about uh, not just a book talk. It's never just a book talk. Um, we have uh, an opportunity to bring David Blight to an audience at the Hochstein School, which was um, the venue where Frederick Douglass's funeral was. And today is actually, December 3rd is the 171st anniversary of the first issue of the North Star. So tonight we are celebrating Frederick Douglass in word and in song. So we will um, be doing a lot of things, including the uh, playing of the farewell song to Frederick Douglass, uh, which is an 1847 piece of sheet music which was written by Julia Griffiths and her brother. Uh, we have one of two copies that are known to exist in the world. The other one is at the British Library. Uh, so it'll be performed by two uh, people from the Eastman School, two students. Uh, we have um, some other music. We have Ken and his mom 
and Robert Benz who will speak. We have three religious leaders from Rochester who will make some uh, comments. And uh, we have Mayor Warren who will speak briefly as well. All of that starts when? Seven o'clock. And again, where? It is at the Hochstein School and it is sold out. So um, if you don't have a ticket, mm. I'm sorry. Well, that's a, <laughs> it's okay. You've got an event tomorrow to tell us about, I think. Is that right, Rich? Yeah, that's at uh, RIT, and it kind of picks up where uh, tonight's event will leave off. We want to focus uh, people's attention on Douglas in the classroom. So we'll have Ken and David and some other people talking about some of the things they've learned uh, during the bicentennial year, uh, some of the insights that can be gained from David's book, some of the things that uh, Ken and David have learned as they've uh, spoken around the country, been overseas to talk about Doug Douglas's legacy. We have uh, a lot of people on the faculty and the staff who have been doing some really interesting things with Frederick Douglass, and we thought this was a great opportunity to bring them together for some really insightful conversation on this important Rochesterian. So again, tomorrow, the details on that event are what? 10 o'clock, we will have the uh, first of two programs that will last from 10 to 11, and then 11 to 12, we will have a conversation between David Blight and Ken Morris. This is at Magic Spell Studios on the RIT campus, and sadly, this event, too, is sold out. Boy, you guys have done a good <laughs> job getting the word out yes. for these. Um, I don't think the book is sold out yet. In fact, I saw a stack of these at Barnes & Noble, though that's on the way, too. So. <laughs> go get on them. There you go. Um, Ken, when we last talked, we talked about the work that you're doing with Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. I think it's valuable to let our audience know, once again, what uh, FDFI is. Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives is an abolitionist organization, and we use the legacies of my great-great-great-grandfather, Frederick Douglass, and also my great-great-grandfather, Booker T. Washington, is the great educator and founder of Tuskegee Normal School and Institute. Our day job is, is human trafficking prevention education curricula for K through 12 schools and educator training on how to recognize signs of human trafficking. But what we did around the bicentennial was we decided to publish a special bicentennial edition of Frederick Douglass's narrative, which is his first autobiography that was published in 1845 at the age of 27 years old, a fugitive slave, having never spent one day of his life in a classroom, he writes a classic piece of literature that the Library of Congress named one of the 88 books that shaped America. So we had decided that we were going to put his words into the hands of one million students around the country over the next several years. So we kicked off the project One Million Abolitionists at the Library of Congress in February 2017. And we've been working since then to get these books out. And we've done about 2,500 books in Rochester. What's next for that? How are you going to continue on that momentum there, Ken? Well, it's a, um, it's a pretty lofty goal to think that we could give away one million copies. So we need the help of uh, community members and organizations, any organization that serves the youth population that would benefit from hearing Frederick Douglass's words, learning about his life story. In fact, David gave us a great quote for, for the book. It's on the back of our book. And he said, the greatest gift that Frederick Douglass gave his country was his story. And it's a coming-of-age story that really anybody can connect with and be inspired by. And for young people, his legacy is a tangible example of someone who was able, able to overcome the greatest obstacles and seemingly insurmountable challenges to rise up to affect change in the world around him. And for young people that are facing challenges in their lives, in their communities, which we know that they are, to be able to look at his legacy and to learn about him um, I've seen firsthand, being his descendant my whole life, I know how his words can impact people's lives. 
Can folks contact you, try to try to round up some more of the books as you march towards a million there? Yes, uh, uh, please contact us. Um, I'll give you two websites. The first is our main website, which is fdfi.org. That's the acronym for Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. And then the project website is fd2018.org. And Ken, we're hearing some word around town that FDFI, well, Rochester would be a better home for FDFI than anywhere else. No offense to any other city or locality. Right. What can you share with us? Well, you know, we're based in Atlanta. We started our organization in 2007. And as we were working on this bicentennial project, we started looking at cities that were significant in the life of Frederick Douglass. So naturally, New Bedford, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., the eastern shore of Maryland, Easton, Maryland. And um, Rochester, to me, seems like it should be the epicenter of everything Douglass, not only locally, but nationally and internationally. And so, you know, we have, we have big plans for a lot of things that, that um, we do, and we decided that we would love to move our organization to Rochester. So we are working on a proposal and to engage the community and investigate if that will be a possibility. Okay, so it sounds like it's not a fully sealed deal, but it lo- sounds like it's pretty well on the way? It's not a fully sealed deal, but I am an optimist. And I believe that it will happen. Are you and like Amazon now, choosing its next? <laughs> yes, it, it should be. And, and by the way, this is much more. This should be much more glamorous than tech jobs. But anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a great point. The sweepstakes for this. There are four contenders. Uh, when do we think we you can you can finalize this? I mean, optimistically, if this goes well, when does this happen? Kevin? Well, we're looking at a few locations, and we have our eye on um, a couple of properties that would be ideal for our vision and what we want to do. That's the first step, is securing a place to be able to do this. So without putting a timetable out there, I will say that it will happen sometime before Frederick Douglass's next um, bicentennial <laughs> birthday. So I guess that would be... Boy, that is Whoa. definitive. That is definitive. Oh, I thought you were going to make some news. I don't know. But... <laughs> would you be surprised if we're sitting here in a year and things aren't done? No, I wouldn't be surprised. It's going to take some time. It'll take some time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Got as much as I could out of Ken. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, to, to David Blight's book, and again, our, our guests include David Blight, the author of the new Frederick Douglass biography called Prophet of Freedom, which is out now. You have said, David, that if you're serious about writing a biography, you have to deal with both the private and public elements of a, per- uh, of a person's life, which does not mean sensationalism. It doesn't mean just digging up dirt unnecessarily. And yet, Frederick Douglass, for all of the work he did writing about his own life, which is, what, 1,200 pages of autobiographies? He wrote almost nothing about two wives, almost nothing about his own children, very little about close friendships. So I want to ask a couple of questions about why do you think that was? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a striking fact. There's one mention of Anna Murray Douglass, his wife of 44 years in 1,200 pages, and she's called My Wife. Um, It's striking. Well, in part because Douglas was always creating one single character, himself. Uh, From the first narrative that he writes as a very young man in his 20s to the second when he writes in his 30s to the old man summing up his life in the 1880s and early 90s, he even revises the third one. Uh, he's always aware that he's got one great story to tell, and that's himself. Now, you could say that's just a, an arrogance or a selfishness. On the other hand, it's, it is part of the craft of memoir. Uh, he's telling his own story. 
and it's an it's an it's always an ascension story. Now, why doesn't he open up and reveal the family story more? Well, there, there are good reasons, and I try to develop that in the book. Uh, his family, uh, his first marriage uh, was never simple. Um, Anna remained uh, largely illiterate all of her life. Uh, the greatest black man of letters in America, or for that matter, the world, was married to a woman he did not share his professional and intellectual life with very much. She built his home. She created his home. She raised the children. She had her famous garden and orchards here in Rochester. Anna was famous for her biscuits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she was the core of his home, but never part of his, of the public man. Now, how would he have written about that without getting quite serious about how difficult that was? Then you, then you think about the children, three surviving adult sons, uh, two of whom fought in the Union Army in the war, and one of whom became a recruiter in the Deep South during the war. And his daughter, his very special daughter, their oldest child, Rosetta, who had more education than her brothers. He attempted to get her the best possible education. But she ended up making a bad marriage, there's no other way to put it, to a young man named Nathan Sprague, who was himself a fugitive slave and a Civil War soldier, uh, had seven babies with him, and a very difficult life and marriage. So if he started writing about that story, he would have probably had to make it into some kind of polished mythic version rather than to deal with the really difficult problems that all families have. And to an extent, at times, his extended family became entirely dependent upon him financially. His sons had a very, his oldest son, Louis, did pretty well. But his other sons had a very difficult time keeping jobs, uh, keeping their lives together. And Rosetta had the most difficulties of all. So there was a lot about the private side of his life, and I haven't even gotten to many other aspects, that would have been extremely difficult to write about, even if it was a 20th century memoir. In the 19th century, however, people didn't write any kind of tell-all memoirs. But in, in large part, uh, the family, the personal life, uh, the kind of inner psychological self-revelations we might like from him just are not part of 19th century memoir writing. Um, on the other hand, those autobiographies also reveal a great deal about him and a great deal about the kinds of trauma and the, frankly, scarring that he came out of slavery with. That's not hidden. Nor is his political ideology mm -hmm. and his political ambitions hidden. Uh, nor his desire in older age to be recognized as, uh, as a major figure in American history. His insistence on being considered, in effect, a kind of founder of the Second American Republic. So there's a great deal of revealing ambition, personal ambition in the autobiographies, but very little about the personal side of his life. Yeah, I, I've got uh, Jim in Rochester. I'll take your phone call in just a second. You've got a question I think our guests can, can address pretty well here. But before that, just sort of close the loop on this. I bring, mm. I bring up these questions on the personal life because I think you take care to 
allow your readers to understand what we do and what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And you also let us know that when Douglas chose not to tell certain personal parts of his life, yeah. it did open the door for others like Otilia Ossing, I think yeah. is how you pronounce it, right. um, to, tr to fill in some of the details, even, hmm. even if they are colored with all kinds of hyperbole. Yes. And so I think as... as at least as a student uh, who's in your classroom, my take mm -hmm. was that you, you felt some need to address this, at least partially because Ms. Ossing herself had, mm -hmm. had a lot to say, even if we don't know how much to believe uh, in She had a great deal to say. A, a German woman who came to America in the 1850s uh, uh, got knocked out of her shoes by Douglas' second autobiography, Bondage and Freedom, uh, went out, came out here to Rochester, essentially knocked on the door to interview him, and then sort of tried never to leave for the next 23 years. Uh, a very, very complicated uh, relationship with both Douglas and the Douglas family. Uh, and Ossing left us a lot to, to chew on in, in nearly 200 letters she wrote, particularly to her sister in Europe. The problem with understanding that relationship is that virtually nothing survives in Douglas's pen. He wrote to Ossing lots of letters, but none of them survive. They were probably burned or destroyed by Ossing herself. Uh, so our understanding of that relationship is colored a great deal by her in her many, many, many letters about the nature of their relationship and her attitudes about Douglas's family, which are not a nice thing to read. And I expose that. You, you, you have to. But I'll just say one last thing about this the business of public versus private, any biographer of any public person has to go there. Otherwise, you're cheating your reader. But what you're really not, you're not looking for the sensationalism. I'm not. But what you're looking for is how does the private life, family life, the daily life of a human being affect public writing, public actions, public behavior, public events? Because we all wake up every day with a private life that influences what we then walk into our work world to do for all of us, whether we're public people or not. Um, and so I, I, Douglas got up every day after he moved to Washington in the 1870s and 1880s wondering what they're going to write about him and his family in the Washington, D.C. newspapers. They became what I call uh, the black first family of Washington, D.C. And everything they did, good, bad, and ugly, got into the press. So he has to live with that every day of his life as he walks to his office or as he heads to the train to go off on yet another lecturing trip. And by the way, his endless lecturing trips were in part because he had a huge extended family financially dependent upon him. Mm -hmm. So the two are intricately related. Ken, you want to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that you know when, when you talk about Frederick Douglass and, and how he started his life, being born into slavery and not knowing his mother, not knowing who his father was, separated from his siblings. He was a, an orphan, really, who had no fa family and he had no home. And so when you consider when he did have a family, five children, 21 grandchildren, the um, privacy that he would have wanted, not only because of the danger of the work that he did, but imagine writing about your family and putting them at risk um, because of how public a figure he was at a time when he's trying to dismantle the institution of slavery. And I will say um, toward my great-great-great-grandmother, Anna Murray Douglas, um, she was a strong woman. She was a private woman, and I'm sure that she had some say in what he could have said 
about her or what she didn't want him to say about her. So, you know, we're talking about uh, about the family here, and um, so much of, of Douglas belongs t- to the world, and we do have um, stories that have been passed down, oral history. Um, we do have a, a teaspoon set that um, Otilia Osling gave um, to, um, I believe, is my great-great-grandfather Charles, who was Frederick and Anna's youngest son, um, as a gift that's been passed down all the way to my sister. And in there is a handwritten note from Charles saying that this was a gift from a very dear family friend. So, you know, there's always... Uh, That's always, what they called her. She yeah, a family friend. A, a dear family friend. Yeah. Let me grab a phone call, and this is Jim in Rochester. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, quick question to the author there. Uh, there's been a lot of comments and discussions, debate on why did Douglas choose to come to Rochester mm-hmm. and I don't know what your research found but I would like to hear your comments about that and uh, and I would like to make a comment after because this was a unique community in that time frame indeed thank you for that question and I do want my friend Rich Newman to weigh in on this um, he came to Rochester because Rochester already had become a kind of safe, secure, anti-slavery community, by and large. He wanted a place outside of Boston where he was under the control of William Lloyd Garrison and the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. He wanted a place to launch his own independent newspaper. He wanted a place that felt safer for his family, although when he moves here, he's no longer a fugitive slave. His British friends had purchased his freedom. Uh, This is often sometimes called the burned-over district here in upstate New York and out into northern Ohio, known for its anti-slavery communities. That doesn't mean everybody in Rochester was an abolitionist by any means. It also had a small but sizable black community, a free black community. Um, Now, his wife Anna at that time wasn't thrilled about leaving Lynn, Massachusetts, where she had built yet another home. uh, but she followed him out here, and eventually she became very much an important resident of the black community of Rochester. Um, but, it, but it was about finding that kind of secure, um, safe abolitionist community, and particularly an abolitionist community with lots of Quakers, uh, like the Post family and, and many others. But, but Rich Newman is really a local expert on this. All right, Professor? Among, among other subjects. Well, I mean, David hit the nail on the head. Rochester's this vibrant reform community, and Douglas had been here several times before he moved here. He'd actually been on these speaking tours throughout western New York, the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, western Pennsylvania. And thinking about it, he thought that Rochester was probably the most Mm -hmm. hospitable place to his type of activism, a kind of radical, Mm -hmm. angry activism that Mm -hmm. spoke truth to power. I think he felt very comfortable here. The black community was politically active. He found people who were protesting against uh, Mm -hmm. segregation in public Mm -hmm. schools. There's an international border. British Canada is just a little bit away. You've got the Erie Canal. It's a vibrant community. He could be a startup artist, uh, an information (laughs) technologist. You know, it it really fit, I think, where he was at personally. Um, And back to David's point about the radical outsider, I think the distance he had from New York, Boston, Washington, all of the capitals Mm -hmm. allowed Mm -hmm. him to really Mm -hmm. investigate his inner rage. From this Mm -hmm. distance, he could criticize people fully and righteously uh, and without anyone, a William Lloyd Garrison, a politician, 
uh, a group of ruffians really getting in his face, and I think he relished mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of um, that kind of position in Rochester society. And you know, I tell people uh, that if you go to some of the county histories at the end of the 19th century, they say that. Frederick Douglass was not only the most important abolitionist in the area, he was the most important Rochesterian to ever live here. Mm -hmm. And I think he really, really, in the 1850s and 1860s, Mm -hmm. liked the idea of being the man in Rochester. And you know, also, uh, if you had your eye on what's happening to the United States in the the 1840s and early 1850s, Rochester was an important railroad head. The American population is really moving west. Uh, The economy's moving west. And uh, why not make your base right out here, you know, in western New York, on the edge of Ohio, uh, lots of abolitionist communities across northern Ohio. Uh, So there was a vision to this, although it wasn't easy at first. He really struggled here to keep that newspaper alive. Just a couple of emails. CT recommends that House of Mercy, Dimitri House, and Reach, all in Rochester, could use copies of this book. They might not be able to purchase, but I think that's a great point for the populations and the folks who are living um, and and spending time at those locations. It's a great idea. Um, If someone wants to take up that project, very good Let's write that down, and we'll sign some books to that. That's a great idea. And Rick just writes to us and says, Evan, thanks for bringing a great Douglas scholar to our attention. Can't wait to learn more about Douglas from reading this new biography. David reminds us with this biography about the value of reading, how that made Douglas the great orator he was, and the, the ability to address a contentious issue in an informed and substantive way. Political leaders of our times have a lot to learn from Frederick Douglass, and I appreciate very much the <laughs> candid assessment Dr. Blight offers of the private life of the Douglass family. Nice reminder that you don't have to be perfect to be great. In any case, I hope Rochester will, will become the epicenter of all things Douglass, as the great-great-great-grandson suggested. <laughs> from Rick. I love that. Amen. Yes. Okay, Rick. Thank you. So there we go. One more, one more vote in favor of Ken and the organization moving here. This is our only break of the hour, and we are going to try to squeeze in as much as we can with David Blight and our panel talking about Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, after this break on Connections. Coming up in our second hour, it's the Hanukkah Lights, an annual presentation from NPR coming your way next hour. So no regular Connections programming next hour. We wish a happy Hanukkah to all of those celebrating across Western New York and hope you enjoy the programming next hour with the stories on Hanukkah Lights. All right, welcome back to Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Jim just followed up, by the way, to ask if Third Presbyterian Church or Roberts Wesleyan had anything to do with Douglas coming here. Do we know about that? Uh, we don't know. Professor Newman, no? He got involved in the local AME churches, AME Zion churches, quickly, but I don't know about the Presbyterian Church. Thomas James, the AME, AME uh, Zion from a preacher, was from Rochester, created a church here, met Douglas in New Bedford, and right. talked about Rochester as this growing uh, reform city. Yeah. Other institutions might have been involved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jim, thank you f- for those phone calls. You know, um, David Blight, in, um, in a separate conversation, you mentioned a 1950s essay in which the author talked about this phenomenon of political movements, causes, and parties trying to, quote, get right with Lincoln. Yeah. You know, it's saying, well, Lincoln would be supporting this. And, and certainly now you have folks trying to get right with Susan B. Anthony, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. it, it's become this politicized, would she support this or would mm-hmm. she support that? Mm-hmm. Same with Frederick Douglass, you see. Oh, huh? yeah. yeah. Well, that essay would be the David Donald essay in the 1950s, getting right with Lincoln, which was this idea that every American 
organization and movement left and right and in between would all try to appropriate Lincoln. There is a good deal of that going on with Douglas um, because Douglas has become that kind of public voice, public figure image, textbook image sometimes. Uh, we, we need Douglas on our side. Uh, the, the only part of that that has troubled me, and I've written publicly about this in op-eds, is that the American conservative movement, uh, particularly libertarians, the Republican Party indeed, uh, has appropriated Douglas at various times. He, of course, was a Republican in the 19th century, a diehard Republican, but that was a very different Republican Party. What's happened, though, and this is inevitable, this happens with every major important historical figure, they have seized upon Douglas's many, many, many expressions of the need for black self-reliance and self-help. Um, he did that throughout his life. And they have seized upon, they being uh, particularly the libertarian side of American conservatism, there's a recent book last year called Self-Made Man about Douglas. And what they do is they say that's his principal legacy, that he preached a kind of a limited government, self-reliance for black folk that is so resonant now. Well, to do that leaves out about I would say 90% of his thought and his life. It leaves out the abolitionist. It leaves out the radical. It leaves out the man who always believed in interventionist, activist, federal power to destroy slavery, to destroy the Confederacy, to recreate the Constitution, and to try to protect the freedmen in the South. He's, you can't put Douglas in a box, but we do that with people. We all do it. We, we want... The great voices of the past to somehow be on our side in the present. So there's a lot of that going on with it. And the more Douglas becomes so prominent through Ken's family organization, through all this going on in Rochester, more of this will occur. But that's fine. That's fine. We, you know, when when you disagree with it, you push back. Uh, but that's what happens to great public figures. Yeah. So so be it. Let a, let a thousand flowers grow, and you know we can fight over what's right or wrong. <laughs> and so Dr. Blight says that's not surprising. But Ken Morris, is it appropriate or fair? Um, in your view, as someone with family legacy at stake here, to say, well, today Frederick Douglass would be in this political party or would support this movement, is that even appropriate? Well, David said it best. You can't put him into a box. And I think people want to claim him as their own. And I've seen that my whole life. Mm. But, um, mm. you know, it's it's not fair, but it's it, it's, it comes with the uh, territory. And mm. we certainly as a family have been frustrated when we see organizations or political uh, parties trying to appropriate his legacy or, or hijack his legacy and and he you know he's been he, he passed away more than a hundred years ago so he's in the public domain you know his writings his his images are in the public domain so the family we don't have any control over like how the King family um, can decide on mm -hmm. Martin Luther King's legacy and what images can be used and, and what words um, he wrote or spoke can be used. Well, speaking of words he wrote and spoke, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, opens with a scene that was entirely unfamiliar to me. Mm. And I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to read a, a, a bit in just a moment here, but I will ask our listeners, can you, in your mind's eye, picture the Emancipation Monument in this country? Do you know what it looks like? The Freedmen's Memorial. It is not the Lincoln Memorial, though until the, the, what we know as the Lincoln Memorial was probably referred to as the Lincoln Memorial. Mm -hmm. uh, but this goes back to 1877. Six. Six, yes. 1876. Um, and this was a monument that was um, supposed to be sort of this galvanizing piece of, of, of artwork that would symbolize Lincoln's legacy, emancipation, a path forward. 
I admit when I first looked at the picture, of which there is one in the book, mm. I found it offensive <laughs> myself. Mm. Um, so mm. look it up right now. So, uh, But can you set the scene, David Black? Because I'd like to read some of Douglas's words himself that mm. you capture. Mm-hmm. But what was the scene that day when Douglas was asked mm-hmm. to be the main order and present at the unveiling of this monument? It's April 14, uh, 1876. Uh, it's the anniversary of Douglas, uh, excuse me, of Lincoln's death. Uh, but it's a monument that shows Abraham Lincoln standing and the slave, uh, a generic slave, although it was modeled on a real person, kneeling, having his chains broken. Uh, it becomes known as the Freedmen's Memorial. It is in Lincoln Park, which is about 11 blocks uh, behind the U.S. Capitol. It still that, is, right? It still is. Oh, very yep. much so. It dominates that park. At that point, that was actually the edge of Washington, D.C., but the setting was a huge parade. Organized by, put on by the black community of Washington. You had drum and bugle corps. You had fraternal orders. It was a, you had bands. And Douglas, the order of the day, rode in the final carriage of this parade that went all over central Washington. The other extremely important element is that no black American had ever had that audience, which was the president, members of his cabinet, members of the Supreme Court, and members of Congress all in front of him as well as a lot of the public. No other black American had that audience until Barack Obama was inaugurated. Isn't that amazing? And Douglas hit it out of the park. <laughs> uh, President Grant unveiled uh, the statue, but Douglas gave what I think is the second greatest speech of his life, the first still being the Rochester Fourth of July speech. Um, but uh, the speech is, this, is his, his worry, his concern, deep concern about what's happening to Reconstruction. So go ahead, whatever passage well, you want to well, read. <laughs> well, I, so I admit, again, as a student of history, ignorant entirely of this moment, yeah. uh, the story behind this memorial. And so I'm reading along, kind of hoping that Frederick Douglass wasn't just going to sort of acquiesce, not that he ever acquiesced, and, and mm-hmm. s- sort of do a cheerleading speech. No. And, and as you write, he opens very forcefully about, you know, sort of th- this new vision of a country that's more united. Yeah. But then he pivots a bit. Mm-hmm. So let me read from David's book. <laughs> um, so Douglas turned to the memory of Lincoln and the speech assumed a different tone. While claiming a place for his people in honoring the martyred president, Douglas suddenly used words that may have shocked some in his audience. Quoting Douglas now, it must be admitted, truth compels me to admit, even here in the presence of the monument we have erected to his memory, Abraham Lincoln was not either our man or our model. In his interests, in his associations, in his habits of thought, and in his prejudices, he was a white man. Blight goes on to write, Douglas must have caused some squirming in the chairs as he injected race so forthrightly into his rhetorical tribute. Grant, President Grant, might have inwardly flinched. It was as though Douglas had decided to give voice to the kneeling slave on the statue, who would now say thank you as well as speak some bitter truths about a real history and not merely allow the occasion to be one of proud national self-congratulation. It was as though Douglas was saying, you gave me this unique platform today and I will therefore teach these lessons about the jagged and tragic paths by which black people achieve freedom in the agony of war. And then quoting Douglas again, Lincoln was preeminently the white man's president, entirely devoted to the welfare of the white man. He was ready and willing at any time during the first years of his administration to deny, postpone, and sacrifice the rights of humanity in the colored people to promote the welfare of the white people of the country. End quote. And your assessment... Douglas employed a stunning level of directness for such a ceremonial <laughs> occasion. What effect did it have? 
Well, that's not clear because I looked in the Grant papers in vain to find what did Grant think of that speech. Weren't you hoping for Grant to? God, I wanted to find that note where he either complained or rejoiced or something, and Grant must have gone back to the White House and taken a nap or something. (laughs) But I don't know. But you know, he goes on. That that speech has yet another pivot. It's this is this is the genius of that speech. After, after laying that out and, and even going on to say, my fellow white Americans, you are Abraham Lincoln's children. I and my people are only his stepchildren. stepchildren. Whoa. Whoa. You know, yeah. that you couldn't walk away from that speech and not remember that line. But then he pivots again and he says, but under his rule and in due time, and he uses that as a, as a refrain three times, Lincoln, under his rule, and in due time, we became free, and the country was transformed. He takes the sec. He just blisters his audience in that first part of the speech. But in the second part of the speech, he admits that Lincoln's caution probably was the only political path to emancipation. Um, and under his rule, and in due time, becomes the refrain that he then takes it out with. So it's a speech that does, does what Douglas so often did. Uh, the first half is the Jeremiah that just makes you hurt and feel the pain in your history. The second part is the hope that maybe, just maybe, we've got something new. But what the speech ultimately is, is a, a statement about how Reconstruction is coming apart, is falling apart. And if, if this government that's sitting right in front of him doesn't do something Right away, Reconstruction is lost. That's what the point of that speech is. He, yeah, he could have got up and just given some ceremonial, you know, flag-waving, it's a beautiful spring day, uh, but, but he didn't. He, uh, he hit it out of the park, and uh, I, I, I think it's, it's one of his most brilliant addresses. I was in, really in, enjoyed reading about the relationship between Lincoln and Douglas and how um, it progressed and how Douglas, not only in that day in April of 1876, but had been very much forthright about Lincoln and his oh, assessment yeah. of Lincoln. <laughs> but how in August of 1864, in that second meeting at the White House, he saw a different kind of Lincoln. I wanted to ask you, was that a pragmatic Lincoln who thought, I'm going to lose re-election here. I need Frederick Douglass. Oh, I sure. need you to be an ambassador for oh, yeah. me. Or was that Douglas saying, he's worried about losing because the cause really matters to him more than I thought it did? Oh, it's both. Abraham Lincoln breathes pragmatism in every breath. Uh, he was a great, great politician. But on the other hand, on that second visit, Lincoln invites Douglas. Yeah. Douglas didn't have to go knock on doors and force his way in. And he confronts Douglas with this idea, will you help me? funnel as many slaves out of the upper south, will you be the agent of this scheme that will be run by the War, War Department and the Army to get as many slaves out of the south, upper south before election day because I might lose this election such that slavery is as damaged as we can make it before the Democrats and George McClellan take over. And frankly, I think Douglas was stunned, first of all, because he wasn't sure how in the hell he was supposed to do this. You know, and he, All he was told is the Army will help you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, you know, and he suppose he's told to go home and put together a bunch of agents who will do this. On the other hand, it's Abraham Lincoln looking him in the eye and saying, will you become a legal John Brown for me? That 
moment taught Douglas that Lincoln did understand, well, more than understood, that the war now was all about destroying slavery and saving the Union. Um, and Douglas then wanted to take that new uh, sense of uh, passion out on the stump and campaign for Lincoln, but the, the Republicans wouldn't let him. Don't you want to read this book? And, and, we, and we don't have time, by the way, to discuss a, a really kind of I was going to use the word juicy. Nothing in this book is juicy. It's all careful. But it was an amazing <laughs> anecdote with Judge Mills of what happens when Frederick Douglass is waiting to talk to Lincoln that oh, yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's for another time. So, yeah. li- readers, you will, I think, appreciate not just <laughs> that incident, but also David's assessment of what that means in context of history. 90 seconds left here. And in a speech that you gave about this book recently, David, you said one of your fantasies is to get Frederick Douglass in a locked room with maybe you and a few other historians. And you yeah. get to ask him anything you want. Mm. Well, what would you ask him now? And Ken, I want to know, too, what you would ask. What, well, let me start with a, uh, with a family member. What would you ask well, Frederick well, Douglass, Ken? Well, Dave, David had us to Yale for a conference uh, several years ago, and that was one of the questions. And I think I shocked uh, the historians that were in attendance or the Douglass enthusiasts. And I said, the first thing I would do is I would walk up to him and hug him <laughs> and tell him how much I love him and how proud I am. You can get away with that. Right. I <laughs> and then I would uh, want to see his back. You know, he mm-hmm. said on occasion mm-hmm. wow. that my degree is written on my back. Oh, boy. And so as proud of as we are mm-hmm. of everything that he accomplished, his contributions, but the suffering that he went through. So I would tell him I love him, and I know David can't even imagine with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be a powerful moment. Uh, David, what would you ask him? I have a long list of what I would ask him, but I might start with uh, Mr. Douglas. Anna, explain. <laughs> And the second might be, Mr. Douglas, you recruited two of your sons into the 54th Massachusetts when they were 19 and 20 or almost 21. What did you say to them? You recruited them into an army where they could be killed, but also possibly enslaved if captured. Did they go to war for your reasons or their own? And that's just the beginning. I got a lot more questions for him. <laughs> well... The book is. But a, I wouldn't tug him. I don't think I can go there. <laughs> the book is a towering achievement. It's called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. You can find it now. And I want to thank David Blight for coming in here and, and spending this hour with us. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Ken Morris, I'll see you in Rochester whenever you get here. Well, we'll come back and talk about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank, as always, it's great talking to you. Thank, Thank you, Ken. You. Thank and you. our thanks as well to Professor Richard Newman from RIT. Thank you for your expertise. I know you're going to have some wonderful events. Jessica Locker-Feldman from University of Rochester Campus Libraries. I know you're going to have some wonderful events tonight and tomorrow. Booked up. That's why we're not telling you more about them. <laughs> They're all booked up. Thank you as well. Thank you. All right. Short break and uh, NPR's national presentation on Hanukkah Lights is coming your way next. <laughs>